everyone, and welcome to Let's Continue the Conversation, a panel discussion on race and equality. This is the second installment of the series, and I'm your host, Jocelyn Dorsey, and we have a very distinguished panel that has come together today for what we know will be an honest, positive, respectful, open-minded, and productive dialogue about current events, inequality, and racism, and most importantly, how to work together to achieve a more harmonic community. I'd like to welcome our audience at listening to us live on Business Radio X, and also welcome the viewers watching us live on YouTube. Our hope today is that today's discussion may open your mind to see things in a different light, and perhaps even bring an understanding to some of the recent events that have rocked our nation during this tumultuous year. Our panel today focuses on area business leaders, and we are joined by the chairperson of the Gwinnett County Board of Commissioners, the president and CEO of the Gwinnett Chamber of Commerce, a well-respected business executive with an iconic Atlanta-based business and leader in law enforcement. We will talk about their personal experiences, their fears, concerns, and importantly, ideas for racial empowerment. But before I introduce this steam panel, I'd like to bring Dan Miller, who is with us, the financial services firm Wealth Horizon. Dan, your company is sponsoring and underwriting this important series. Why did you feel this discussion was necessary to continue? Well, Jocelyn, first of all, I'd like to thank you for agreeing to moderate this. My wife and business partner, Drew Hewitt Miller, and I have lived in Atlanta for more than 40 years, and we truly love our city and uh, our community and like many other people we've been disturbed by the recent incidents and events surrounding racial tensions and we realize this can't just be something that we talk about when an incident occurs we believe that this needs to be an ongoing conversation and we searched for a way that we could perhaps make a difference and we felt inspired to create this forum promoting honest and respectful dialogue. And while we recognize that these conversations can be uncomfortable and difficult at times, it is our hope that uh, this can begin a path to a deeper understanding. Well, certainly, I hope it will. And I'm sure with our distinguished guests, we will have that happen. Thank you. Thank and you, so Jess. We will continue the conversation with our very distinguished guest, and I would say that I had a long biography prepared for each of one of them, and they told me, do not say anything. So I will introduce our guests and their titles. Um, first, we have Nicole Love Hendrickson joining us. Welcome. She is chairperson-elect of the Gwinnett County Board of Commissioners. Thank Hello. you so much for being here. Hello, and thank you. And also, we have and Jerry Boss, Director of Public Relations for Waffle House. Certainly appreciate you coming in as well. Thank you for having me. And Nick Messino, President and CEO of the Gwinnett Chamber of Commerce. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you for telling me not to read everything. <laughs> my pleasure. John Pearson, one of my buddies, I should say, <laughs> he has been in law enforcement in the community for more than 35 years, and we thought it was very important to have a law enforcement executive joining us. So thank you for being with us. Thank you, Jocelyn. Okay. One of the things that 
it was interesting was that I understood that Mr. Miller said that it was important that we continue the conversation because we don't just want the incidents to occur and nothing happen. But before we get there, I would like each of you to kind of give me an assessment of where your head is on this whole issue of um, racism, the current events that are happening now, just to kind of give me your perspective of where we are today. And I'd start with you. Okay. Um, well, thank you again for hosting me on this conversation. I am Nicole Love Hendrickson, and I am the chairwoman-elect for Gwinnett County Government. And we are the largest, most diverse, second largest, most diverse county in the state of Georgia. And I will have to say that racial relations, racial tension, anything around diversity and inclusion, I mean, this is my world right now. Making history as the first African-American woman to serve in deceit in and the county. Congratulations on thank that. Thank you. In the county's 202 year history, um, it, it didn't sit well with everyone in the county. And um, considering that we also um, had other commissioners, African American, that will now be joining the board, there is a, the fear of the change and the shift, not only politically, but also. Uh, demographically and so this is my world and and how do we bridge uh, what once was into the future mm -hmm. and make people feel that sense of stability and security to know that um, you know with change uh, in leadership we're still going to be effective leaders because we want to do a good job for our community we just have different ideas of how to go about doing that and what has been the reaction of you being the first? I've got to be curious about that's got to be in this political climate just a very tough situation right now. And it, and it depends on who you talk to. Mm -hmm. So you have a great, a great deal of the community who is very excited and energized, but there is um, a community sentiment that feels that, um, you know, just uneasy about that change. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there's a lot of unknowns with new leadership that doesn't look like what it has looked like for 200 years. So what does that mean for our county and our future? And is it going to continue to mirror what we've always benefited for the past 200 years or is that gonna change? Mm -hmm. And so it's having the ability to communicate what a, what a future looks like, but also involving people in envisioning the future together, so. And we wish you well on that journey. Thank you. We know it's going to be tough, too. Thank you. Mr. Messino, um, you're the chair of the Chamber of Commerce of one of the most diverse counties in the state. And what are you seeing from that perspective as well? Sure. Thank you. Uh, and so I'm the president and CEO of the Gwinnett Chamber. And just for clarity purposes, because it's been a bragging point of mine for well over a decade, is we are the most diverse county in the southeast United States which makes us the most diverse county in Georgia. You have to get to D.C., Montgomery County, uh, counties uh, around D.C. to find a county as diverse as us. So there's th over 3,000 counties in the United States, and we're the 37th most diverse. My friends in DeKalb County will say all the time, no, we're more diverse. And people forget the definition of diversity, which is inclusion. It's people of different races. Uh, DeKalb County has more people of color, non-white people, but they're not as diverse as we are because we have a large population of black, Hispanic, Asian, and white. And it, it, it's truly a melting pot. And unlike no other county in the Southeast United States, how do I feel? Um, it, personally, and then I can, I'll answer professionally. Professionally, um, so we're we're listening on YouTube. I know there's a video, but I'm the only white person on the panel. Uh, just wanted to point really? that out. Yeah, yeah. I don't mean to freak you out, Jocelyn, but yes. Um, so 
I, I will share with you, it's been a personal journey for me. Uh, I know when I, and, and I, I don't think we're just talking about what happened this summer, but we're talking about this lifetime and for all of our lifetimes. Um, you know, when I heard the term white privilege, I was immediately defensive because I'm white uh, and I haven't done anything wrong. Uh, my family didn't do anything wrong. And, and I had to get past that. And when I got over, when I recovered from that feeling defensive, I started thinking more retrospectively about it. How, what, how have I benefited? And I will tell you for the people in the, the table, you can't have the same discussions I have from a white person to a white person. People get very defensive about it. And they're gonna be more open to me than people that don't look like them. And uh, it's just been an interesting, I've had a lot of interesting discussions with family members and coworkers uh, and friends. And it's just interesting about the whole spectrum. And, and I would say, the, I would respond with, hey, I got defensive at first too. And I denied that it existed, mm -hmm. but let's think about it. And how have we benefited and how have other people not benefited? And mm -hmm. why do they have to do more to get to the same place we are or to get actually not even get us as far, but they've worked harder. And, and it, it's, you know, really tough discussions. Okay, that's just me, Nick Messino, personal experience. Now uh, to answer it as I, as I lead the greatest chamber in the United States, the Gwinnett Chamber of Commerce, we are without a doubt, uh, been an inclusive chamber uh, since I arrived 14 years ago, but I'm very, very proud of our staff and our board um, that really took this opportunity of what happened this summer to turn a very, uh, well, I mean, it really depends on your perspective. Was this a negative thing or was this an awakening and it's the greatest thing that's ever happened? It just depends on your perspective. But I took over a year ago and was given the opportunity to lead the organization and we were not reflective of the beautiful diversity of Winnet County. And I had this plan of just using over in the next two to three years, we'd get more diverse. Well, I just took, seized uh, the opportunity and we went from a uh, not as reflective as we should have been. We actually were less reflect, less diverse than we were years ago and we just got stagnant. And I just used this opportunity and we are now arguably the most diverse chamber in the United States. I don't know that for a fact because nobody measures it. Uh, but when I look at where we were to where we've come, it's been dramatic. And uh, Jerry Miller, who's sponsoring this uh, with Dan, uh, she was completely supportive. I did not have a board member that wasn't supportive of the changes. And so I'm very, very proud in every category you could measure, women, uh, people of color, black, Asian, Hispanic, we 188% increase was the smallest. And you can have fun with percentages if you had very few people. Uh, and believe me, I've taken advantage of every percentage increase to brag about. Uh, but this is not a, uh, a sprint, it's a marathon. So mm -hmm. next year we'll do more. But I, I'm, I'm excited about the changes that are coming. Nicole has just been in this for 12 months or 18 months running her election. I'll just share uh, my perspective. I've known Nicole for well over a decade, and I couldn't be more excited about uh, her and the changes because where she absolutely describes herself as the first Gen X black female uh, to be elected to this position. I just see Nicole Love Hendrickson, who loves her community, who cares, who, is, who has shown her love for Gwinnett and the people in Gwinnett. And uh, as a former social worker, she cares about people, but she also cares about the business community. And so I just, I'm excited a person that cares about Gwinnett just got elected. That's, that's my view of Nicole. I've got to ask you though, on the personal note. Yes, ma'am. And I've talked with a number of my white friends who were very defensive about white privilege and the title and until they understand you know, the nuances of it and the subtleties. What was your aha moment? 
I don't know that it was a specific aha moment. I just did what some of my friends asked me to do, which is why don't you do some research and why don't you Google white privilege uh, and see what you see and maybe watch some videos. And I've got some friends, uh, I'll, I'll name drop Demetrius Jordan, who's a great friend of mine. And he suggested some books and some movies to watch and, and I'm doing my homework assignments. And I, I said, hey, I'm not gonna read any books. If it's not audible, <laughs> I'm not reading it. Uh, but I've been doing research and I, I've got a lot more to learn. Uh, but the whole thing's been a journey and I've grown and uh, I've challenged some people that I thought that would maybe be open to being challenged mm -hmm. and some shut me down immediately and, and you know, we'll get there. I mean, uh, if you start from a place of love and friendship, people are open. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I try to do that at work without crossing any lines, but uh, I've just, it's, it's been a tough, but I do not have this. There wasn't a singular time. It's been a process for me this summer. Mm -hmm. and, and now, you know, we're in winter now, but. And great that you got there, too. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm not there yet. It's a journey. <laughs> yeah, it's always a journey for a lot of us. I mean, yes. on both ends. John, or, I'm sorry, Mr. Pearson. <laughs> I'm John. Mr. Pearson was my father. I, I haven't arrived to the place where I deserve to be called Mr. Pearson. Oh, yes, you have. Um, I have to ask you, as a law enforcement executive what has been happening you know on both sides of the law enforcement specter has to be concerning and maybe misunderstood by a lot of people the whole defund the police and you know what's been happening with uh, the incidents that have occurred with people of color I, I think the things that uh, we've gone through as a country are just indicative of um, the reality that law enforcement has to change the way that it's done business. Um, I, I, I look at um, what's happened and I, I, I'd like to consider myself a student of law enforcement. So for a number of years, I've wondered why we have, we've never changed the way that we police and the processes that we use in, in policing. Um, I'll, I'll share a story with you that was really my aha moment. Um, <clears throat> I was the um, I, I was a, a deputy commissioner, a deputy uh, director of police services for DeKalb County. Uh, we had a particular community that uh, was um, we were having tremendous challenge with uh, with crime in that community. So our crime analysis people, we looked at the numbers and that that. Uh, about two two square mile radius was where the majority of our crimes were occurring and so it was my responsibility to create a a response to that and I did uh, I created a, a, a response that I called the safe to cab um, <clears throat> we utilized our uniform division our our um, criminal investigations our special operations we brought every resource in the you know that the, that the police department had to bear on this particular community and and we absolutely had a phenomenal impact on the crime I think if, if I remember correctly we reduced crime in that community uh, by the violent crime by 17 percent and property crime by 21 percent and by all admissions that people would think that that was a success but then I begin to look at the impact that we had on that community because the crimes that were committed in that community 
were committed against people who lived in that community. They had already been victimized by the criminal element of, 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 of that area. And so I come in with a, with, with a crime you know, initiative and strategy that does not include them. And then we re-victimize them by the way that we police in that community. And so uh, I, as, as a law enforcement executive, you know, at this uh, stage in my career, I, I will never create a crime strategy that does not include the community that, I'm, uh, that I intend to work in because they have a right, they have a right to have input in that process. And so, um, you know, I, I was raised in law enforcement from a perspective, it was always us against them. It was always the police against, the, you know, the, the community. Um, we wanted to say it was the criminals, but at the end of the day, it was the community and, and, and the criminals that, that reside there. So now we're in a place where we're having to figure out how, we, how do we go back and build trust in those communities so that we create legitimacy. See, it's that community, that community that we went in, went in and, and, and victimized that gives us the legitimacy to police them when and only when they realize and know and believe that the efforts that we are making are there to help and support them, they give us legitimacy to be there. Then they, they trust us so that we can go in and work with them to impact crime in particular communities and to make a difference. But as long as I am from the outside, and, and I, I go back to my, my, my original story where we went into that community, um, you know, the people that lived there, they didn't have any place to go. They had mm -hmm. to put up with the criminals, and they had to put up with the warring police department. But the majority of the police department, we went home to another community. We didn't have to live that. Mm -hmm. and, and so um, some people say it was a success. I, I claim it as my, my biggest failure as a law enforcement leader. When you hear the term defund the police, what does that mean? What does that evoke with you? It, <clears throat> it evokes a thought process that says what they really mean is to reallocate some of the funding from the police department. I, I just can't imagine anybody in any community thinking that they can defund and do away with the police department. And I understand that frustration because there, you know, we have become a community where police are called for, if, I, if you don't know how to handle it, you don't know what to do with the situation, you'll call the police. Mm -hmm. Well, the police should not be put in that, those kinds of situations because we don't respond and handle everything. When, and, and so I think one of the biggest challenges, how do we deal with mental health, mm. okay? You know, I'm, I am a police officer. I go to a training academy. I learn, you know, uh, uh, criminal law and traffic law, and I understand that. But I don't have any training as it relates to being able to deal with people who are in a mental health crisis. And so I cannot, it is, I cannot and should not be expected to apply my same policing strategies 
to deal with someone who's in a mental health crisis. They have a completely different need. Mm-hmm. And, and so when I hear people, and, and I think people are realizing that, and so when I hear people talk about defunding the police, I hope what they're really trying to say is that we need to reallocate some of our funding so that, so that the government can better serve the people in that community. So you think it would be a good idea to have health professionals alongside the police working in cases? I mean, I, I have to admit, I just went through this. And the, you're right, the frustration of, A, knowing someone has a mental health issue, and B, knowing that you don't want to have them arrested because that's not going to solve the problem, but C, not having anybody there who can really handle that situation. You call a police officer into that situation. I am trained that when I get there, I have to be, I have to have control of that situation. So I tell that person who's in a mental health crisis that they have to listen to me, that they have to calm down and they have to think rationally. Well, if they could think rationally, we wouldn't be in that situation. Exactly. You know, and 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 they're they're hearing voices talk to them, and I'm trying to tell them, well, no, you, you you know, those those aren't voices. You know, they're not strange people talk. But then they see me turn around and key my mic, and I'm talking to strange people who aren't th- who aren't there either. And so, you, how how do they trust what I'm you know what I'm trying to tell them? I just don't have the training to be able to to deal with that, and no police officer does. We need to make sure that we have some kind of partnership, a mental health partnership, and that's just one example of where we can, and I believe should, reallocate some of the funding um, for from the police department to other areas. Uh, we may need to increase some funding in some other areas, but we just have to do a better job at serving our people and we can't expect police officers to be able to handle every situation that they're thrust into. I think that's a great perspective, and a lot of people need to hear that, too. Mm -hmm. Ms. Boss? Yes. Well, uh, personally, I'll say I was raised in DeKalb County, and when it came time for high school, I, like our vice president-elect, Kamala Harris, got on a bus at my high school that was right behind my house, walked up there, got on the bus, and drove for an hour Mm. to go to uh, a high school where I and fellow folks who were on the bus with me would be in the minority. Uh, (laughs) Substantially, to be able to have access to resources that weren't at my home high school. That, That resonated with me in a very deep way because once we were there, in school it was difficult because there were people there who didn't want us to be there Mm -hmm. and those folks who told us that was great because at least I knew where I stood but the people who didn't want us to be there who kept it to themselves but did it in other covert ways Mm -hmm. it was difficult to know who you could trust and who you couldn't Mm -hmm. and I just don't think any child even though high school were starting to become young adults, but that any child should have to worry about that when they're at school on top of everything else they're trying to do. So that sat with me and I let that marinate for a little bit. Went off to college, uh, decided I didn't want to stay in Georgia, I wanted to go elsewhere, and went to the University of Iowa 
where I had a terrific career, did a lot of things that I don't think I would have been able to do had I stayed in Georgia at the time. And I'm very grateful for that. I uh, got my BA in journalism, was trying to decide between television and print. I actually did an internship at 11 Alive News. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, so I was leaning towards broadcast until it finally came the day to make the decision, I went print. And the reason I did is because I felt like I needed more time to tell the story mm -hmm. and to offer an opportunity for people who don't normally get approached to be able to have a voice. So I went into journalism bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and thinking I was going to change the world. And <laughs> As we all did. Right, right, right. <laughs> so then reality hit. <laughs> and after the, I don't know, 33rd middle of the night police car wreck call <laughs> that I went out to, I said, you know, there, there's, there's got to be some other things I can do. And so I was able to get involved in the particular community where I was living in Florida at the time to be able to do something with the city government there, uh, a city two cities and really try to emphasize the ways that they were trying to impact positively their community. These communities being ones uh, that were highly um, African American, the numbers were very high there, and there also was issues with drugs and crime. So these two cities were trying to be proactive and so I had an opportunity to try and help them spread the word, get stories to be told, so that people elsewhere would know, hey, there's, there's some struggles going on here, and we'd like to walk hand in hand with you to address them. So after doing journalism and print newspaper for a little while, I ended up in Savannah, and from there I was covering the courts. And I decided, having sat to, I don't know, the 10th or 11th time at midnight <laughs> waiting for the jury to come back, and having seen so many lawyers, many of them who were very good, and several of them who were not, I said, I, I could do that. And I could probably do a better job, certainly, than the ones who were horrible. <laughs> so I went to law school in California. Mm. And uh, I ended up practicing law for about 12 years. And one of the things that I did do uh, for nine years was that I actually served as an attorney for parents or the children in child abuse and child neglect cases, mm. juvenile delinquency cases, mental capacity, developmentally disabled persons, folks in need of guardianship or conservatorships, do not resuscitate orders, and then some minor criminal defense work. That was your journalism. <laughs> all of that. <laughs> that was your all community. Of that. Yeah. I tell you, that all of that. That was your mission. So then I, I did that for nine years. And as you can imagine, I saw people at their worst trying to help them to become better uh, and get to a point where they either could reunite their families um, navigate the legal system in such a way that they may have an opportunity once they return to the community to be productive citizens and not have those barriers that uh, criminality often um, causes people to suffer. So after nine years, I, I was a little burnt out mm -hmm. and I came back home to Georgia, brought my son. My husband had to stay in, uh, we were in Michigan at the time, he had to finish up his work and came back to Georgia and I tell you what, Georgia had changed a lot in the 20-some-odd years. I, <laughs> some odd years I had been gone. And it was really interesting because I found that with all of the credentials that I had and all of the experience that I had, that I couldn't get an interview. Mm. Because I guess I'd been gone so long and all of my references were in other states. 
And, you know, if you don't know somebody who knows somebody, it's kind of hard to get into those circles. The good old boy system. I tell you, it was real <laughs> difficult. But I will say that there was one company that was willing to take a chance on me, and that was Waffle House. And I went to Waffle House, I kid you not, I applied to be a server. I just Ooh, needed wow. some hours and some benefits. Mm -hmm. And they saw my application that same day and called me and said, do you know about our management program? And I said, what management program? And they explained it to me. I changed my application to management. And ultimately, I became a unit manager, meaning I ran a restaurant in the Conyers area, Conyers, Georgia. And then I became a district manager where I was responsible for three stores and three unit managers and trying to help them become successful as well and coach their teams to success before I came over to the corporate side. Mm. And so what I've seen in all of those experience, I've seen various uh, opportunities for change, some that were taken, many that were not. I've also lived personally, my family is diverse. My husband is white and our son is, well, he's checked other, he's checked black, he's checked, I mean, you know, the census forms are, are really, really interesting to deal with. But not only that, he is a former, he is a veteran of the U.S. Army, mm. and he is a former law enforcement officer. He actually retired from the federal level in law enforcement. This is your son. This is my husband. Right. I was oh, going to okay. say, my this son. is your son. No, I was no, going to no, go, no, no, this couldn't no. be your son. No, no, no. My son just turned 18. I was so like, okay, good. He's, he's just starting his journey. So into that dynamic that I had grown up in, and now I'm back in Georgia, mm -hmm. and there are different dynamics than there were when I was growing mm -hmm. up, and I have now been with my husband 24 years, we knew from the beginning that there were going to be some difficulties. I mean, you can't go into a biracial or multiracial relationship without considering those mm -hmm. consequences. And we were going to be okay with them. We were fine with them. Um, and little did we know that there would be things that would force us to have to have conversations with our sons sooner than we wanted to, mm -hmm. at a very young age, four, the mm. age of four, to have to explain to him what the N-word meant mm. as it was shouted to us as we were walking down the street, just he and I. And, um, and then recognizing now through this very, very divisive and um, just really heartbreaking election cycle that we've gone through, seeing all of the, the uh, divisiveness in the country and people can't even agree to disagree. If you don't agree with me, we can't have anything to do with each other. All of that then fell into on top of our relationship. Now remember, he's law enforcement. So mm. our conversations can be quite interesting. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> can be quite interesting, but we, we're able to be very respectful mm -hmm. to one another where we disagree. We agree on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, but on those points where we do disagree, simply a lot of it has to do with, I, I don't have his experience. My experience clearly was different. Um, but I'm hopeful that our example, our relationship, can be more indicative of what I thought I was growing up into as an adult in the United States, where we can have the conversations as difficult as they can be. Sometimes you have to walk away, collect yourself and come back. But be able to have the conversation, and if you can't agree, to be able to say, we're just gonna agree to disagree. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm, I'm, I'm most hurt by right now, 
that that doesn't seem to be happening. And I've got to ask you on a personal note, um, <clears throat> and um, I say that I have a very good friend who's a biker. I'm a biker. Um, and oh, <laughs> biker mama. And I have a very good friend who's white. And uh, <laughs> he and I, the last time we went to North Georgia, we were a little nervous about that whole appearance mm -hmm. of us being, even though we're just friends, of being together. I'm wondering how you feel with the climate and the rise in white supremacy and all of the things that are happening in, in terms of the public persona of racism, how that has affected you personally as a couple. Well, again, there have been some very difficult conversations that we've had to have. And we just had to have the ground rules that in our house, there, this would be the place where you could come for a respite, that you can get away from all of that. We, we try to limit how much news is listened to in the house and also how many of those conversations that we start with, I bet you won't believe, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Um, it has been tough because when we were in Michigan where we lived in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan for the nine years where I was practicing that uh, family law and criminal law, I was and my son was one of a handful, if that many, in the town where we lived. And it would be interesting because my husband as a federal law enforcement officer would drive around and meet people and talk with people and end up in circumstances where folks would say things. Mm -hmm. And then we would ultimately show up at an event and those folks really clearly did not know <laughs> that my husband's, that my husband was married to a, a black woman. Mm -hmm. And so there were, there were those kinds of conversations. And then ultimately when we left was really the last straw was when my son was in, was in the fourth grade. He was in a private school at the time. And he again was called the N-word, mm. this time by another student. Mm. And it was my husband's decision that, hey, th this is it. I, I'm just not, I do not want you all subjected to this. I want you to move back south. Um, he knew I wanted to be close to my family and all my family is here in Georgia, Georgia, South Carolina. And so we did that, and even being apart for two years so that he could finish what he needed to do at his work and employment and retire while I was down here getting our son settled into school and settled into things that he just was not familiar with because when he went to school uh, in the Upper Peninsula, he was the only black student in the classroom until there was a group of three who moved in from Gary, Indiana don't know how they ended up in the <laughs> upper peninsula. Don't ask me. I don't know. I asked their mother several times, how did you pick? But so when they arrived, my son, Nathan, was very excited, very excited, because he had somebody who at least reminded him of mm -hmm. himself. And they were able to have conversations that he couldn't necessarily have with some of his other classmates. So it was really um, life altering in many ways. The fact that I was someone's mother who then had the same responsibility that my parents had had to try to guide them and explain race relations. Um, my family taught us you love everybody. You may not like everybody, mm -hmm. but you love everybody because that's what God calls you to do. And taking that and seeing that sometimes that's really hard to do. Thank goodness for the Holy Spirit because sometimes, mm -hmm. <laughs> I tell you. 
But um, that has really colored my experience. And I'm so grateful to Waffle House for having given me this opportunity because one of the things that I found out that I did not know about Waffle House is that it has always had a very strong culture of inclusion. From the day when the first store was open in unincorporated DeKalb County, just outside of the city of Avondale, when we opened that store and then a second store, at the second store, there was a woman who everyone called Miss Lucy. She was African-American. And there was not an issue. Now, this is in the 50s, because mm. we were opened in 1955. And even at the f from the first day, everyone who wanted to eat could come through the front door. You know, that's a big deal, mm -hmm. coming through the front door. Oh, yeah. Sit down at the counter and eat. There was no come to the back door, none of that. Mm. And when the second store was open and Miss Lucy happened to be in that store because they, they purchased another restaurant and made it a Waffle House, she stayed on and had, I believe, a career of 47 years wow. with us. And learning those things and looking at the layout of what our founders and then ultimately now our chairman, Joe Rogers Jr., has done and now our CEO, Walt Amer, has done to continue the development of that culture. The thing about Waffle House is careers in management. We're going to just talk about management right now. Right. The thing about management, and particularly at Waffle House, is it takes time to develop the skills that you need to be able to lead a team of 30 or more people, and then ultimately 30 at three places, and then nine places, and then so on, until you become an executive vice president responsible for 300 or more stores yourself, leading that underlying team behind you of trying to get them to do and believe in the same mission. And today, people are all about instant gratification. Mm -hmm. Gotta have it now. Holding out for management, you know, that kind of thing. And they don't realize that because it takes time that you're not gonna necessarily see that diversity that they want to see at every level. But it's there because we're looking at a, we're looking 20 years forward. The people who are going into management now, the folks who are coming out of the hourly position, becoming assistant managers and third shift supervisors, then deciding they want to go into management, they're going to be the future executive vice presidents. So we usually, you know, people look at our executive vice presidents and we take a ding on that because we have one African-American male. But do you know that each of the other men in those positions have been mentors to the other men, be they white, black, whatever, and the women who've been coming along to take their place. And so it's a very different culture than any other place, any other restaurant. And I didn't know about it until I became a part of it. Um, and it's, it's really hard sometimes because a lot of times folks hear about, you know, the bad stuff that happens late at night that we didn't have any control over. You know, folks come right. in, they've had a little too much fun, and they decide they want to continue the fun. Um, but there's so much good that happens, so many inspiring stories that happen. The way that our associates, that's what we call our employees, the, the hourly and management, we're all associates. The way that they touch the lives of the people who come into the Waffle House and you can be rich, you can be poor, you can be anywhere in between, 
You can be white. You can be black. You can be a vegan. John Ossoff. Uh, you know, you come on down to the Waffle House. We've got great hash brown bowls. Uh, so, I mean, it's just been those things, all of those experiences that I had growing up and now as an adult in what I, what I hope to be my final career choice um, has led me to firmly believe that businesses, and particularly like Waffle House, have a responsibility to the communities that they serve. And Waffle House has embraced that may not always be visible to the people who want to detract from what we're doing, but it is there. And if you really want to know about it, all you have to do is ask. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And I want to mention now that we have done the round robin, that I don't want this to be another round robin. I want this to be a conversation. <laughs> Everybody's mics are hot or open. Mm -hmm. And so I want you to feel free to join in that conversation because that's what we want to have. Mm -hmm. Um, this has been eye-opening and mm -hmm. certainly appreciate all everyone sharing their experiences. Interestingly enough, I was trying to figure out all the different questions without getting into the weeds about some of the issues, but what, what I found was there has been a new Pew study, and I just throw this out to anybody, but there's been a Pew study that it said with all the incidents that have, that have happened with the police, um, with the white supremacists, the you know marches, the, everybody talking about what needs to be done, that most Americans don't believe anything is really going to happen. Mm. And you know now that all the shouting is over, they're very skeptical about what happens next. What do you say? John, I see, <laughs> I see your mouth quivering. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, and I, I just have a somewhat of a different, uh, a, a different approach to this. Um, when I look at, at trying to understand the why, how how do, how do we get here, and and I'm just going to focus on the. Uh, the, the, the black-white relationship for just a moment, if you'll, if you'll allow me. You, you know, we, we, we live in a country who, who says that we, we have certain inalienable rights, that we're all created equal, and that, um, you know, that the Creator gave us certain powers, and, and so there is a process of things that we should be able to enjoy. Um, but <clears throat> when I look at the, the from, from a sociological standpoint, uh, I see that the, in order for us to get to those places, there are basically five institutions that, that teach us how to be Americans, how to be citizens. And, and those basic institutions are, it's the family, it's the, the family, the church, um, the education, it's economics, and, and it's government. Well, when I look at how African slaves were brought over to this country, all those institutions were not available to them. You know, families were separated, so they didn't have the opportunity to, to learn how, how, to, how to be a family. Uh, religion was primarily used to keep them in place and so that they would stay in their place and, and, and then then education, you, they, they weren't allowed, the, the African slaves, they weren't allowed to be educated. They didn't uh, have the opportunity to participate in the economic process. So, and, and, and government, the government was always used to 
keep them in place and keep them enslaved. And so all of the processes that we have that will help someone to develop into all the things that this country calls great and, and should be everyone should be afforded, those African slaves weren't afforded those things. All of those institutions were had a racist foundation in them. And that hasn't changed much. You know, so when we talk about institutional racism, it's still very prevalent. You, you know, it's uh, the complexion of it may have changed. Uh, our approach of it, you know, has changed and it hasn't, it has, has changed, but it's still very much institutional racism. And so when I look at, I, I look at from a law enforcement perspective, the things that are going on, and, and I see that the, the, the uh, national president of, of the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives asked the question to, uh, um, <clears throat> to the Attorney General, you know, um, about institutional racism in, in law enforcement, and he doesn't believe that it's there. And when we ask those same questions about education, Miss um, Boss described how she had, um, had, had she experienced the educational problem, that it was full of institutional racism because in order for her to get the same level of education, she couldn't go to her local school, she had to go to a, and so, <laughs> I think until, you know, with the, when you ask, will ever change, and people are suspect as to will anything change, I think until we begin to have a willingness to tear up the fertile ground of institutional racism, we may not see any change. And, and, and be clear, now, when I say institutional racism, I'm not talking about individual racism. I'm talking about the, the racism that's inherent in the, in the process of living day to day uh, that we have to face. Mm -hmm. And nobody wants to talk about that. Mm -hmm. you, you know, um, Dan shared with us, you know, when, when he talks about white privilege to, to his friends. When Dan, a white man, talks about white privilege to his friend, they look at him like he's a little crazy and they don't want to accept it. So do you think that when, 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 when a black man comes to those same friends and, and want to talk about institutional racism you know, or, or, or white privilege that they want, that they're willing to, to listen to me and accept it and validate it at any point? That, that has not been my experience. So when you ask me, do I think that will anything really change until we as Americans are willing to be truthful and honestly look at it and, and carefully evaluate it based on the facts, I, I, I don't hold a lot of optimism that, that there'll be change unless there are people like us who are willing to sit down and have those conversations, to be honest with one another and, 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 and respect one another. Yeah, uh, I have to agree with that. Um, you know, and honestly, I, and I would say that actually, I, I, I'm very optimistic about our future. And I, when I look at where we were and where we are now and where we're going 
it does give me a lot of hope because I don't think 200 years ago I would have been sitting here. You wouldn't have been sitting in your position. If Waffle House did not decide to take a chance on you, you would not be sitting in your position. And so I think there is, there is hope in that. And I think we will see change. Um, I think change also begins with us and it's internalized and we should internalize it and, and what we can do to be part of that change. When we talk about institutions and policies and structures that have been put in place that have historically excluded people, well, you, in order to change policies and those structures, you have to change policy makers. And me going into the position that I'm, I'm getting ready to go into really was about representation. It was about uh, representing people who have historically been excluded and giving a voice to those who have historically been uh, ignored from policies and also giving a voice and amplifying the voice of the needs of all of our citizens and constituents. And so I think when you look um, you know, at a granular level, I think it, it's a very grassroots and granular level that you'll start to see the change happen. It's very incremental. I love what you said about building that culture of influence and it, starting from within. And we may not see the change right away. It may not be immediate, but it may be 10, 20 years from now where we'll start to see some of those structural barriers um, torn down and, and taken away. Um, but it's, it's up to us to, to start or to continue those dialogues because I, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of many people who have fought and died yes. uh, so that we could be where we are today having these conversations and sitting next to Nick Messino. <laughs> uh, you know, having these conversations and these dialogues and be, being in these leadership positions and I won't ever forget that. And I will never forget that we're, how far we've come to get to where we are. And I think we need to continue that dialogue. It's about carrying the mantle forward and uh, thinking about where we need to go for our future generation. I have a six-year-old son. Um, he's about to be seven. And, um, you know, he heard the N-word for the first time as well. And it's a conversation that parents don't want to have. And I actually remember having this conversation with Nick, and I don't know if this could be your aha moment, Nick, but we talked about the conversations that we can't have, our conversations we have with our children are very different. What you have, a conversation you have with your oh, son and yeah. daughter is very different than the conversation I would have with my son. And it's also preparing him and training him to be that next generation to carry that mantle forward as well. And my husband and I, when it comes to his education and when it comes to the things that we want to see, we're, we're advocates in that process because we can see how the institutions can further impede his progress if we're not very intentional about being advocates for that. And it's not only looking at this as being an advocate for my son, but being an advocate for everybody who has historically not had a voice. And some people you know think of that as you know we, we want a voice we just need the amplifier mm -hmm. and communities need those amplifiers and and I think so, of and Jerry yeah. talking about mm -hmm. the fact that people want instant gratification mm -hmm. and so as you with chairman-elect mm -hmm. going in and knowing that people want instant gratification mm -hmm. and that doesn't always happen mm -hmm. that quickly 
what is the challenge that you feel that you're facing, your biggest challenge, yes. and what's the biggest thing you want to do in your position? Oh, my goodness, and I get this question a lot. And, and Darn, you know, I thought biggest I was asking challenge, you, yeah. <laughs> you thought you got me. Uh, well, Nicole, you got that for six months during every campaign. Every right. campaign right. question. I, I, and you did a great job answering. It's been, been built into to my campaign rhetoric. But, um, you know, outside of the campaign rhetoric, what, what I will say um, you know, the biggest challenge right now is creating that that level of stability and setting the tone for at least the, the next six months to a year in a community that has experienced a shift in leadership all across the board from our county commission to our sheriff, to our tax commission, to our school board, to changes in leadership all across the board. There is there is a level of fear and instability. We've already been told we're going to turn into DeKalb County. We've already been told we're going to turn into Clayton County. And if you can understand the racial undertones of oh, that yeah. dog whistle, oh, yeah. then you know that that is something that we have to overcome. As new leaders coming into this, we have to work very hard, harder, unfortunately, harder to set that tone. And, and this is part of privilege as well because African-Americans coming into leadership are under greater microscopes and have to prove themselves and have to work 10 times harder mm -hmm. because one mess up is, is worse than a white male screwing up big time. So we have to, uh, my, my challenge and, and my biggest obstacle in overcoming is how do we set that tone for the next six months to, sh to unify our community, to build that bridge from what was to what, what is now, to build that, that uh, um, sense of uh, understanding of where we are. We're not the same county we were 202 years ago but it's going to take everyone in the community to drive a vision of where we want to be and who we want to be. And how do we do that in a county as big as ours, as, as diverse as ours, who's very politically divided? Um, that is the biggest challenge. And that is what I hope to accomplish is really focusing on building that beloved community um, that Dr. King has always imagined. And how do we reimagine that here in Gwinnett County? And so that, that's my biggest challenge, but that's one of my top priorities. And I saw you taking furious notes, Nick. <laughs> Way in. <laughs> uh, sure. Well, I, I think Nicole is the right person at the right time, uh, without a doubt. And uh, her popularity uh, was with men, women, uh, Gen uh, Zs uh, to uh, baby boomers. It's really impressive. White, black, Hispanic, Asian. I mean, she really is the person that will be. Is, is set to bring Gwinnett back uh, or, or together, uh, really, and, and I, I believe that wholeheartedly. I, I did want to just reference to, she said, maybe my aha moment, and uh, I had this conversation with Nicole. Her son's young. My son is 18, and uh, I have a coworker who has uh, a, a, a black female coworker. She has two adult sons, and I have another one that has two. Also, I have two that have two adult sons, and when we were just going through all this together as a, as a work family, and realizing that I never once was worried about my white 18 year old son going out, having an interaction with the police department and no offense to the police. It's just, I mean, you, you get this more than I get it. Um, that I was never once worried he would not come home because an interaction with the police department would be, he got a speeding ticket. Maybe they pulled him, he was changing his tire and they would help him. Uh, I never thought of it. And when that reaction happened to me, that these ladies who I respect and care for, that they've had to worry about something that I'd never even 
acknowledged that was to me that was one of the things that was like okay i get white privilege uh, and uh, in the same vein I, nicole i'm not sure if i shared this with you or not but my we were going down to charleston uh for a vacation this summer and my son wanted to drive his new jeep and bring his best friend who happens to they're football players he's a, a big good looking tall black guy my son's a big good looking white uh guy and i was like guys okay yes we're gonna go through uh, South Carolina and and I we live in the bubble of Gwinnett which is again I think a little I mean I, I know there's problems you just got off the campaign trail but for me it's just this utopia of inclusion and uh, equity I, I know we're not there yet but it's a progress but I'm selling Gwinnett every day of my life so yeah. it's perfect so I said hey guys I said I'd always train my son when you get pulled over, you roll the windows down, you put your hands on, it's, it's the evening, you turn the lights on, get your hands and keep them, don't move them until they tell you. And I'm like, listen, you guys are going to uh, South Carolina together and you're, you wanna take the top off. And, and I said, just be extra careful and don't do anything you're not, you, you don't move until they tell you to move. Uh, my son is just, he's a challenger. Uh, and he wants to challenge authority all the time. And I'm like, this is not the state to challenge authority. You guys just go from A to B. Of course, they're two 18-year-old boys who are headed off to college. Uh, the, the, his friend's going to Wofford. And he's like, they, they decide just to stop by the college. And they show up two hours later. I'm scared to death they won't answer the phone because they're two dumb boys. <laughs> but uh, young men. Uh, but anyway, that, that was part of my process. And I, I had a lot of those. I just didn't know that there was any specific one. Um, you had asked, you said the Pew study said that most Americans don't think there's going to be change. Um, and I have felt differently about that as I, we went from summer to fall. And uh, I've always been a big fan of the term. And believe me, I, I, some you all might know who said it. But, you know, you can it's act locally and then hopefully changes happen globally. Or, I know I just butchered that. But uh, the reality is in, in I feel like the Gwinnett Chamber of Commerce, uh, we can only we can do what we can do. Um, I, I sometimes don't have, I'm, by the way, we didn't read the bio, thank God, but I was an eight year mayor of a small town in Georgia. And, uh, you know, this is nothing in comparison to what Nicole's done, but I was a Yankee Catholic Italian uh, and they elected me mayor of their small Southern town, which still makes me laugh today that they did that. But uh, I was just thinking maybe no one else wanted to do it because I did run out of post, <laughs> unlike Nicole, I had to fight for it. Uh, but the, the reality is uh, they were open to change and I, I have been elected. So I, I get to speak from uh, a recovering elected official. Uh, I don't always have faith in government's gonna fix it, but then you, you think about what government has done well and what hasn't done well. I mean, the GI Bill for white Americans was incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean, what we educated America and created the you know best economic times America had ever seen in in the fifties uh, and sixties. It was actually helpful for Black Americans. It, My father wouldn't have gone to college had it not been it, the GI Bill. Well, I did some research that said otherwise, so I'm great. <laughs> I, uh, I'm glad to hear that there was uh, that there there was that experience. Um, but the thing I was going to say is. It, 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 when you talk about the GI Bill on education, if we can get everybody, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, all on the educational track by their reading by third grade, all the studies show that everybody academically uh, can get to uh, equality um, or, or actually have fair equity in education, not just equality. Uh, and we, we have got to just pour every resource we can. And that's where I think the government can do something. But then I would say I, I'm not just not a big fan of leaning on government. Uh, and I, I know that's not the silver bullet. That's just an example. 
uh, as you used an example earlier, there's, there's, you could sit here all day and we could talk about every single opportunity. Uh, but I do believe it really means something to all of us. We have to all do something. And number one, have awkward conversations uh, with people that look like you, people that don't look like you. I would suggest for my white friends practice on other white people uh, and, you know, just out of respect and try to get the terms down because it's just been enlightening for me. And then sitting down with people I trust uh, that are my friends of people of color. And and I, and I would say, hey, listen, I'm going to screw up and please give me grace mm -hmm. because I'm, I may say the wrong things. And I, I know that one of the things that was said to me, uh, you you had mentioned white supremacies on the rise. Three months ago, that I've been like, "What are you talking about?" Mm -hmm. uh, because again, I, I'm I, I'm not a white supremacist. I don't know any. I don't hang out with them, and uh, and people of color are like they don't wear hoods and sheets <laughs> today. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're right. other. They're, they're, and they they're look, much more sophisticated now. <laughs> right. Yeah, they yeah. AK 47s <laughs> Yeah, well, and they're Just, you know, and and we have cell phones now, yes, and, and everything's yes. getting recorded. Social so have, media. Yeah, people mm -hmm. have to be smarter about their white supremacy, mm -hmm. and yeah. so. Um, I went from saying, oh, I don't think that that's true to saying, well, maybe I don't know to, okay, maybe it's obviously happening. Uh, and what can I do to help stop it? And, and I, I don't have an answer as chamber president, uh, but I'm open to listening to both my board, my members, my constituents, uh, and helping create an opportunity for us to get better. You know, I, and I would say okay. this to you, when, when your African-American friends tell you that white supremacy is on the rise, um, I would suggest that you add, you place a greater value on that statement than maybe you have in the past because see I, I'm going to notice that because I've I'm, I've lived I've experienced I, I know racism I'm, I'm going to have a, a better insight th than you are because you, and again this is not a shot at you Dan but you've lived white privilege mm -hmm. I've lived the other side of that mm -hmm. and, and so if and and I think that that's, that has to there has to be that willingness if we're going to move forward mm -hmm. if we're going to be more impactful you've got to be white America has to be willing to listen to the perspective that black people bring to the table about the issue and you can't just deny it because right. you don't think that it's the right. reality you can't I'm dismiss our right. experiences right. Right. we're we're living this yeah. every day you know, and, and we, we talk about being stopped by law enforcement. I've been in law enforcement <laughs> for 35 years, over 35 years. I teach executive level uh, at law enforcement. I teach in, 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 uh, in, in various academies around, around the state. Mm. But, you know, when, when, I, when I get pulled over, I'm just, as, I'm, I'm just a black man driving – and and I have to deal with the same things. I put my hands on the on the wheel, and I don't move them till I'm told. And and I usually am armed, and and I tell them quick. You know, I've 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 got a I've got a pistol on my side, or it's in the truck. It's you know because I want to survive that, mm -hmm. and I have to teach my sons and my and my friends and and and, and all their children how to survive a trap. There is something wrong with a criminal justice process where people have to feel that they have to teach their children how to survive an encounter with police officers. Mm -hmm. And see, and you can't relate to that. Mm -hmm. I, but it's it nevertheless, it's, it's my experience, it's real. Mm -hmm. It's our experience. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I think that's really interesting about all of that and very important is that a house divided on itself cannot stand. Mm -hmm. Right. 
when Dr. King and all of those um, great civil rights um, icons led the movement, they recognized that they couldn't do it by themselves. Absolutely. And one of the things that I was really heartened by this summer was seeing the number of people from other communities, whether they were white, whether they were Native American, and we forget about the Native Americans mm -hmm. a lot of times, Native mm -hmm. American, mm -hmm. uh, what have you, joining African Americans mm -hmm. to say, this isn't right, mm -hmm. we can do better, um, yes. that folks deserve the right to, if, if they've committed a crime, they deserve the right to arrive alive at the jail, mm -hmm. and then they deserve the right to stand trial. That's our yes. process. That's right. mm -hmm. um, and so that really gave me hope. Mm -hmm. And that, that also brings me back to one of the things I think it's very important for businesses and communities to recognize the communities that they serve. And at Waffle House, that has been part of the blueprint. We have, we believe in servant leadership. We're homegrown, so you can't just cut the line coming from some other company and, you know, I want to be the executive vice president because I was over here. No, you got to do the same thing I did and be a trainee and then become a unit manager and on and on. But that each one of our restaurants, the way we look at them, you know, people look at it as a, as a big chain. We believe that these are a bunch of individual restaurants that are reflective of the communities that we serve, that happen to live under an umbrella called Waffle House. Mm -hmm. Because every restaurant reflects the attitude of the staff there, the, the managers who are running those stores, and what is very important is the outreach that they're willing to do in their community. And we have worked really hard, and we're starting another initiative again, because as you, as you know, mm -hmm. things can become stagnant, and there's always room for improvement. But the idea of being an active participant in the development and the support of a community. Uh, and when I see people you know, make jokes about Waffle House and all the little things I'm sure you can imagine, <laughs> I think back to the folks who have committed crimes, have paid their debt to society, and can't get a job, mm. but they can get a job at Waffle House, uh, depending on what the crime was, of course. Mm -hmm. They can get a job at Waffle House. People who may not have embraced education because they didn't have the support at home to push them through like you were talking mm -hmm. about with your son, and I know that I had to do with my son to push back against some of the assumptions that had been made, and these folks didn't have that but they can go and find a career, a lifelong career at Waffle House and put their children through college that they never went to and maybe put a roof over their kids' heads that they never had or be able to buy a piece of vehicle for their child graduating from high school that they didn't get until they were an adult. Um, so the job aspect cannot be overlooked and that is why right now with COVID and everything that's going on, recognizing the impact that the virus has had on lives. People have lost their lives. A, a humongous number of people have lost their lives. But at the same time, those businesses that have been providing jobs, which are lifelines for people in these communities, they've lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. Where we've made decisions 
to shut things down completely. Um, that becomes very difficult because a lot of the times the folks making those decisions don't have their paychecks cut. Mm. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. At Waffle House, we all took pay cuts. The the uh, the management, upper management, senior management took the most pay cuts, sixty to forty to sixty percent, so that our lower level managers and our hourly folks could could survive, mm. so that we could move some money around. Because we only can pay people when we bring money in, right? We just hope that the Congress could be like Waffle House. That's <laughs> <laughs> I've mean, heard that before. And the, and the, and that's the. I mean, Waffle House is a great example, but playing devil's advocate, mm -hmm. um, it's not it's not corporate America. And so, and and not only that, but when you look at government, it's it's not government. And what I hear a lot of. Uh, people saying is you know we've got all these issues education is an issue mm -hmm. health care is an issue jobs are an issue and then I hear other people saying well where are we going to get the money to fix this mm -hmm. we can't keep throwing money we've got a huge debt right now and the debt is humongous mm -hmm. and if we keep adding to this debt you know our grandchildren and our generations to come are going to be saddled with that so how do you fix that? How do you convince people that there needs to be money put behind this to solve some of these ills because it's not going to be done by the will of the people? I defer to the corporate person in the room. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I, I, am, I have a Bachelor of Arts in Communication, so I'm probably the I'm usually the dumbest person in the room, so I might be, but I can okay. talk. I, I will say I listened to a lot of economists, and after the 2008 Great Recession, we expected inflation because what did we do is we bailed out uh, corporate America. H has anyone seen the inflation? Has anyone refinanced their house in the last 10 years? Uh, I have. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. we all have. Yeah. Uh, we either bought one I or, yeah, or we refinanced. It, yeah. 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 Well, we all Well, right now, it's the lowest. You cannot yes. basically go any lower. Exactly. It, it is prime. My point is uh, we can reinvest. Um, and I don't I think that what we have proven in the last decade is that the inflation that we have if we didn't have inflation 10 years ago we're, we're, we're probably okay you can't just keep spending 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 the money has to come from somewhere but we, we have to invest I, I, and I think that Nicole maybe you said it earlier but these incremental changes that are gonna happen I mean you, you have to start somewhere um, you know, even at Waffle House, what you hire today is the future leader. Um, we we have got to get it right with reading by third grade. And I, I'm again, I'm the dumbest person in the room, but every smart person I talk to, if you can't get that right for everybody, then we're in trouble. But if I just think about, and I'm so glad that the GI Bill didn't just help white people, but think about what the GI Bill did for America. And what, could you imagine if you had everybody producing at the same economic level, mm -hmm. uh, fairly and equitably, and what we can do, I mean, I, I and I, man, I Nicole, mm -hmm. agree with you when you said our best days are ahead and we've, we've got mm -hmm. some, you're, you're, you're opportunistic about mm -hmm. uh, the future. I know I am. Uh, I wouldn't want to be doing what I'm doing if I wasn't excited about the future. But if we can get that right, I'm really excited. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, we, we do have to invest. And, and maybe we were investing the wrong way. And there's times where I was not happy about the U.S. educational system. But you know what? It's our educational system. And so we just have to keep tweaking. It is incredible. Sure, there's some other countries benefiting from us uh, that, that are better than us. But they also don't have the, the opportunities and, and challenges that we have. This is a great country. Uh, we just we've, And we're never satisfied. 
uh, I've spent a lot of time around the world. I've had dinner uh, in China. Uh, I've been to China 18 different times. I've been to Korea 12 different times. I've been all over Europe. Uh, every single person I've ever met, I don't care what their political persuasion is, uh, all they care about is the next generation. It's every dinner discussion I've ever had. Because it always ends with, hey, can you get my kid an internship in the United States? Uh, mm -hmm. It's because we just like, we care about all of our kids that we talked about sure. and their safety and their next step. That's, that's what everybody cares about. And if we could just focus on getting, it, it, it is a magical recipe. If everyone's reading on par by third grade, uh, it is incredible what can happen. And what you're saying is a no-brainer. But if you look in Georgia and you look at what happens with education mm -hmm. and how resources are not allocated to education mm -hmm. in Georgia, it's like how do you convince people that you do need to invest? Because mm -hmm. clearly in Georgia, we don't. Mm -hmm. We don't invest in public education. Mm -hmm. We would invest mm -hmm. more in the criminal justice system than okay. we invest in education. Mm -hmm. and, and so how do we get over that? Which doesn't make any sense, because if everybody was on on par at third grade, they wouldn't be going to jail. Uh, I mean, it's like it's, it's it's insane what we focus on. Uh, I, I don't I don't have the silver bullet. I I'm just blessed that I'm in Gwinnett County, which is the greatest public school system in the United States. <laughs> well, one of the things I would would point back to is things that you said, John, about the institutional difficulties of the institutional racism that they're difficult for a lot of people to see. But when you recognize that you bought a home in a community, uh, that over time there wasn't much investment by the government, whether it was local government, state government, federal government, and those neighborhoods decline, mm -hmm. okay? You go to try and get a loan to do something about your particular property only to be told that you can't get that loan. And we know from historical fact that banks had a redlining process that they used to be able to deny loans to people of color. Mm -hmm. That may not be as obvious today, it may not be so forefront today, but the vestiges of that remain. When you decide to build a highway, a superhighway, that shuts off or encloses one community, making it difficult for them to have access to food and uh, money, loans, and quality education, and we forget about those areas because they're over there. And we've got the new shiny thing over here. All of that comes from history. There were decisions made then that are echoing very loudly down the corridors today and are still going to be shouting into the future. And so there are many things, I think, that we can do. What, Nick, one of the things you talk about with education. Mm -hmm. But we also have, it's a multi-pronged attack mm -hmm. that has to be made. I mean, I am heartbroken every time I drive on Memorial Drive. Mm. I remember as a high school student, we couldn't wait to get to Memorial Drive. There were so many great eateries and stores. They weren't all discount shops and title pawn shops and, mm. you know, third-hand car dealerships like they are today. There hasn't been that investment, but there have been in other areas. It's a priority issue. We have to decide what's important to us collectively. 
And I think there's just, there's a belief out there, and I've talked to people about it, that, well, they, they don't want the same things, you know, because as soon as they, whoever they are, move into the neighborhood, well, the neighborhood's no longer good enough. We got to move to a different neighborhood that's going to have better schools and this, that, and the other. I mean, I heard people telling me about, you know, they talk about Conyers and like, not to knock DeKalb County, my home county where I grew up. Y'all know y'all going to be the next, y'all are becoming the next DeKalb County. What is that supposed what to mean? What does that mean? Yeah. Right. So I think it is incumbent upon us. You said not, not by the will of the people, mm-hmm. but you can't just look at government. I think pressure still needs to be applied to the government. We've got to get the right people elected. Mm-hmm. We've got to recognize that our futures are intertwined and they will not blossom and go forward for all of us if we don't come together on that. But I also think that in the communities, things that businesses can do uh, in coming together to support the communities where there are, not just with jobs, but one of the things I know I I had wanted to do before COVID made it difficult to meet Mm -hmm. with, go out and meet with folks and talk about these ideas and get them rolling, was really creating partnerships with the organizations in the communities that are the movers and shakers of those communities. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, for example, if there is high crime in a particular area and you've got businesses there, over time, businesses will leave as the crime rate increases if nothing's done about it. Well, what kind of partnerships, before you make the decision to leave, what kind of partnerships can be formed with those folks in the community who wanna see you Mm -hmm. stay? Mm -hmm. What kind of answers can we come up with together that will maybe not solve the crime problem, but begin to have dialogue with law enforcement and with the, the, the city officials and with the local organizations to create a plan that makes it more hospitable for businesses to remain in the areas where they're serving the community. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I just think, you know, there's, like you said, there's no one silver bullet. The problem is so big yeah. that you can be paralyzed by it. But we have to bite the elephant one bite at a time. And we have to keep doing it and keep coming back to it and get people to see that their future depends on everyone else's future. Because these kids we don't want to educate are the, the, the future nurses and doctors, mm-hmm. and they're going to be taking care of us. That's my problem. We, yeah. You either, like my grandmama used they to say, you either pay them. now mm-hmm. or you're going to pay later. So we have to decide where we want to put our -hmm. our resources. And I was just slipped a note. I can't believe that we're almost out of time. Oh, my goodness. I know. We've had such a great conversation. But I want to just do a round robin with some final thoughts. John? At the end of the day, I, I think that there has to become a commitment to caring. Exactly. I've got to be willing to care as much about your family and your community as I am mine. And, and, I, and I think that that may be the silver bullet because if, if I am willing to demonstrate a genuine caring about your family, you know, about, about your church, about your, your, your school system, about the economics in your community and, and how the government serves you, if I'm willing to care for and fight for yours, as much as I am mine, then we'll make the difference one step at a time. And Nicole, last, my, my last thing, I, I just wanna say that I am, I am proud of you. 
I, I appreciate the fact that you're willing to get out there and, and, and put yourself out to take this tremendous challenge. And I absolutely know that there, there are not any easy days for you, you know, but be encouraged and don't give up. <laughs> thank you for that. I am in total yes, awe you. because you. I have been a reporter for mm-hmm. over 40 <coughs> some years. And I've covered the Gwinnett County mm-hmm. Commission. Yes. So to see you mm-hmm. and to realize mm-hmm. how far we have come mm-hmm. is quite an accomplishment. Absolutely. And we, we have a community. You know, I realize that I, I, I'm not in a silo leading this county to the promised land, for lack of a better word. But um, I, I see a vision for our future. And I know that I cannot do this alone, that I have to involve the community going back to what Mr. Pearson said, is that we have to involve our community in every decision that we make because it's our community. It's not, I live in this community too, and what people fail to realize is that, uh, yes, I am an uh, incoming elected official, but I'm also your neighbor. I'm also impacted by the policies and decisions and the tax increases (laughs) that have come my way. I'm a homeowner. I have a child who's educated by our amazing school system, and so, it matters to me just as much as it matters to everyone else. And that's what I want people to take away is that I am your neighbor. So we're in this together. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. Uh, obviously, thanks to uh, Jerry and uh, Dan Miller with Wealth mm-hmm. Horizon for sponsoring this and, yes, and bringing us together and, and for their invitation. Um, I, I would just say uh, in closing that this is not an easy conversation. Uh, you all have lived an experience that I haven't lived, and I mean everyone at the table and uh, every, anyone listening uh, that is, is not uh, white. Uh, and so uh, be patient uh, with the folks that want to learn, and people have been patient with me, and it's, made, it's been an incredible journey this summer. You all have lived this your whole lives, and uh, I, I, thanks for getting me up to speed. Uh, and uh, I, I truly appreciate the people that 10 years ago were – when I was asking the question as we were becoming the most diverse county in the U.S., uh, how, okay, what's good about diversity? And I had those discussions 12 years ago uh, where it made us, we were a better community because we could recruit people, uh, companies from around the world because we were more diverse and we had unique languages and we represented everybody. And people are like, oh, white people would be like, oh, okay, so diversity is not bad. I'm like, no, I, I think it's good. Uh, and so you could you could just like, you know, allow yourself to be open and ask kind of maybe really obvious questions, uh, but you just don't, you can't come up with the, the answers yourself. And so you can explore these things. And so this is way more complex than just is diversity good for your community. Um, and these are tough things and I appreciate uh, being invited to have the discussion today. Absolutely. Well, I, I think he mentioned diversity. I, I think uh, people need to really understand the difference between diversity and inclus- inclusivity. Mm-hmm. Yes. Diversity is being invited to the dance. Mm-hmm. Inclusion is when you're asked to dance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we've got it. We, you know, we got to get past fighting over, well, diversity quotas, whatever you want to call them. We, people who are invested and are committed need to be brought to the table and mm-hmm. then ask their opinion. and then allow to help be a part of making what's new and great and good and coming in for the future be a part of that. And uh, we're never going to get there 
if we're unwilling to care, like John said, <laughs> and recognize that the same things I want for my children, you know, the, great, the generation is always, we want them to do better than we did, right? Mm -hmm. The same things that I want for my child, I know you want for your child, or you wouldn't be at this school. But it should be that way for every child, every school. Mm -hmm. And we just got to come together on that and realize that we all want the same things in terms of being able to enjoy life, mm -hmm. liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Oh, she took That's my right. line. <laughs> no, seriously, thank you. And Nick, I do want to say to you, it's not learning is just not a one-way street. Mm -hmm. It's a two-way street. So we have to have a dialogue. Mm -hmm. It's not just a one-way conversation. We have to learn how you were raised, yeah. you know, because you have characteristics and cultures that we may not understand. Mm -hmm. So I want to just say to everybody, that is a two-way, mm -hmm. two-way, three-way conversation yes. where all of us can learn from each other, yes. and it's not just us preaching, yeah. uh, because I have learned a lot in the conversations that I have had. And I want to say whether you've listened to us today on Business Radio X or watched us on YouTube, we want to thank you for joining us for the Let's Continue the Conversation, a panel discussion on race and equality. We recognize that this is an involve, evolving and dynamic subject. We hope we have opened your eyes to some of, some of the complexities. So our plan is to revisit these topics and continue the conversation on a regular basis, hearing from other distinguished members of the Atlanta community. And I certainly want to thank Business Radio X for hosting this and yes. to having such a great, enlightened conversation. And I am so privileged to be a part of it, and I thank uh, them for inviting me. Uh, so until next time, I'm Jocelyn Dorsey. But remember, the phrase, and I looked this up because I wanted to have something profound to say because it's one of my favorite sayings, is you must be the change you mm. want to see in the world. Mm. That's often credited to Mahatma Gandhi. Mm -hmm. But guess what? He didn't say that, <laughs> not specifically in those words. What he did say in 1913, he published a piece that included the theme in this passage. And he said, we but mirror the world, all the tendencies present in, present in the outer world are to be found in the world of our body. If we could change ourselves, the tendencies in the world would also change. As a man changes his own nature, so does the attitude change around the world towards him. This is a divine mystery and a supreme wonderful thing that it is and the source of our happiness. We need not wait to see what others do. And thank you all for not waiting to see what others do. With that, I say good evening. I should say good afternoon, but I don't want to date this conversation. And thank you so much for being with us. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.